back to Echoes from the Canyons, a retrospective music podcast. I'm your host, Ash Sider, and with me, as always, is your co-host, Jimmy Sider. And today, we're just going to do things a little differently here. We're just going to dive right in, right out the gate, with no setup for the show. Because I can, and because there's no rules here, and because rules are for suckers. Enjoy the show. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast contains a lot of adult language and a lot of adult subject matter. If conversations about sex, drugs, and illegal activities makes you a little bit uncomfortable, or if you're underage and not supposed to be listening to this type of material, this show is definitely not for you. So welcome back to the show. This is our 18th episode. No, I'm just kidding. It's episode three. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so... I must have been sleeping a long time. Yeah. He did 18 episodes without me. So, yeah, I, I did. I just <laughs> I just uh, pretended nice. to be you the whole time. Is this the third episode? It is the third episode. Okay. Well, the third in, in this order. Of course, we've recorded a couple extras there. Okay. But uh, they're going to take a little, little bit longer to cool. edit. I have to keep track, too, okay? Because I don't know, man. This producer, you know... <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. this podcast producer that's never produced a podcast right, well, before. But, you know, you were just a little, I mean, you were a little baby, and then now look at you. You're not a baby anymore. <laughs> so they grow up, yeah. and then they start talking back to you. Yes, it's unbelievable. Yes. Anyway, that's life. So let's go for it. What are we? What What would you like to know today, my friend? I think we need to discuss one of many lineup changes in the birds. Post David Crosby finishing up the record, obviously they're they're working on finishing that record, the Notorious Bird Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess let's start there. Let's start with finishing up the record and sure. go from there. Okay, well, no David, all of a sudden, Shazam, no David. And to Gary Usher, the producer, he was in shock when he heard that because he wasn't finished and we weren't finished with the record. But In reality, we did have David's parts all sung. He had sung everything he was supposed to sing. And the only exception would have been one of my favorite songs, Triad. And that was debatable as to what would happen with that song. But at that very time in history, CBS in Los Angeles decided that The Vault had too many tracks in it from all their bands or all... Which we had actually talked about on the last episode. Right. You you had mentioned this about how they did their archive. and Yeah, they, they wanted everything to be complete or not be in the vault. Right. If it wasn't complete, it can't be in the vault. Right. So they actually had to go through the... Gary had to go through the steps of finishing whatever Crosby had started with Triad so that it was a finished track. And mix it, because he only did a scratch vocal on what he had. Anyway, that w- that had to go on, but that had to go on separate from us, the band, because the band was trying to finish the album. And that was already selected what that was going to be. But there were some overdubs that needed to be done. So okay. when we booked the time, Gary had to book Crosby in at a certain time, and then the guys would come in, and we'd work on finishing up the album. And so, so Crosby was still coming in. He, he was, was still coming in the studio, yes. Even though he was no longer with the birds. Correct. 
And he was still amicable. I mean, you talk to him out at the vending machines or in the parking lot. He was fine. Uh, he was just waiting for the CBS decision of what's going to happen to him. Are they going to keep him as an artist? Or are they going to let him go? He didn't know. And that's what he wanted to be let go. So, And eventually they did let him they go. They did let him go, yes. A few weeks later, they let him go. But by then, he had finished his part, and he wasn't at CBS anymore. And we were finishing up the record, the artwork, took the pictures. We did all of that stuff that you have to do at the end of a project. And tick all the boxes, which is what CBS would do. Oh, I got it. Well, where's this? Oh, what's this? Okay. And then it's like, oh, pictures of the band. Oh, my God. Because the agents always wanted to have pictures of the band because they're going to use those to advertise in Philadelphia or Chicago, wherever the gig was. They needed a picture. And if they put up the picture of the four birds, they expect to see four birds. Those four birds. Right. And they couldn't keep up. The agents were always pissed off at me because it's like, I can't send these pictures out to have Crosby in them. And well, yeah, what are they going to do? I said, well, we're going to replace him. But so far, they haven't replaced him. And this is a reoccurring problem. So this... Oh, it's totally reoccurring. With their, yeah. <laughs> with their lineup, I mean, they're constantly yeah. uh, turning over. I constantly got berated by agents, by the... Uh, People that were promoting the shows, they would call me. What's going on? Who's in the birds? You know, Bill Graham went nuts on me once on the phone. Who's in the birds this week? And I was like, well, Bill, I wish I could tell you, but I haven't been in the office, so I don't know. <laughs> if I go in the office, then I'll find out. And, and who, who, who in the office would let you know? Well, when... Larry Spector. Larry Spector. He was the only one, yeah. He, he was the only one that knew that because... If somebody quit, they want their money, you know, they want their paper that says they're out. That was what they wanted, okay? And they needed to get that, so it was legal. Right. And done. Finished. Done. Thank you very much. And, and Larry Larry Spector, just really quickly, Larry Spector had, had joined or had started business managing the birds in, like, what year? Like, would that be 67 or? Yeah, I think it was late 67. Okay. Crosby put him up. Before leaving. Yeah, before leaving. Yeah, of course. Months before um, that he would be the, a great business manager because, quite honestly, Eddie Tickner was over the birds from the day I started. One of, my, one of the things he said to me was, whatever they need, whatever they want, handle it. Right. I didn't know what that meant, handle it. Handle it, what does that mean? I didn't know at the time. Had no idea. But I found out pretty quickly. He just didn't want to know. They had been such a pain in the ass for him. He really didn't want to know. And I'm not just saying David. All of them had been a pain in the ass for him. Oh, Michael needs money. Uh, Chris has to go here. McGuinn's doing this in, with the guy from New York. He's writing songs this week. McGuinn needs a new telescope. Right. Yeah, he needs a new <laughs> telescope so he can watch the neighbors. I mean, you know, it was always something. And he didn't want to know about any of it. He was tired of it. And I can't say that I blame him because they were a bit of crybabies, right? Hillman was probably the best. Michael just didn't care. Really? I mean, what are their ages, though? They've got to be in their early 20s, right? Yeah, I think so. I never asked that question, to be honest with you. Really? Never did. I knew that by maturity, I was older right. than, than all of them. McGuinn was probably older because he was married and had a kid, and he had been in a lot of other professional organizations. The rest of them hadn't done that. They hadn't gotten married. They had, didn't have kids. And they weren't in a lot of other bands before. Right. So 
he was the one, you know, Gene Clark was the other guy who was more mature, right? But Gene was a damaged guy, really. And Spectre's lineup of people at that time was the Birds as an entity, all four of them plus Gene Clark, which was a separate entity, but he managed Gene Clark also. Uh, Spectre also had three of four of the monkeys. Mike Nesmith, he didn't have, but he had the other three. Uh, he had Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and the film product that they were working on, which was Easy Rider at the time. He had Hugh Masekela, who was an African trumpet player that I think most people will know that name. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, he also had uh, Graham Parsons, and he had a couple of other budding young actors in the stable of Spectre's people, if you will. And when I got the notice... I received a box. Uh, I was told to go to this office in Beverly Hills. It was a rooftop set of offices, which wrapped around in a big horseshoe. And the roof deck was Spanish tiles. Very nice office in the middle of Beverly Hills, right in the city on Brighton Way. And I go in and there's a box on the desk. Okay, It says, from Eddie Tickner. And it has all this stuff in it, contracts and future contracts and past contracts and just many, many things, photographs, whatever pertained to the band. And that was Eddie's way of going, here, you take it. Now, I never was privileged to know whether Spectre had purchased the birds from Eddie. That I do not know. I don't know if there was an exchange of money or if he was just required to send him a percentage when we worked live. Right, like a sunset clause. Yes, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I really never knew the financial situation between Eddie and Inspector. Eddie was still very nice to me. I had to call him for a few things. He was very nice. He always was very nice. And, you know, he would just say, well, how's it going? What, what, everything okay? I said, yeah, I think so. I'm in charge of doing it. He said, well, that's a, that's a logical step because Spectre doesn't know how to do that. Right. And it was true. And Larry told me that straight out, first day. Look, I don't know anything about doing a band, so you handle it. Okay, here, here I am again. <laughs> I'm handling it, okay? Well, that must be nice because he's got his nice percentage and you have well, a salary. Well, yeah, he's got his percentage and his, his mother was our bookkeeper and... He had a young group from Huntington Beach called The Things to Come that he managed, and he was trying to get them a deal, a record deal. So, you know, they were nice cats, very young, very aggressive, and nice cats. And two of them became very big frontline musicians in Hollywood when that didn't work. Do you and remember they, their names? They broke up. What? What's that? Do you remember their names? Sure. Brian Garofalo and Russ Kunkel. Russ Kunkel was James Taylor's drummer for many years. Okay. Brian Garofalo played with a lot of people. And in later years, when I took Cassidy out, Brian Garofalo was Cassidy's bass player. Okay. So, you know, nice guys, very nice guys. And we rented a house for them up in Hollywood Hills, and they had a seven-month contract to be the opening act for whoever played at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And whoever played at the Whiskey A Go-Go in that period? Oh, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, The Who... Um, everybody, okay, every band that came to Hollywood to play, they opened for. Okay, so they had they had basically a residency. They were the house band for seven months. Gotcha, okay. And I was helping them, A, get through Hollywood unscathed uh, because they were kids from the beach city, okay? And they didn't really know how th things work and how the chicks are and all that, you know. So I, I was just helping when I could. And when I could would be a tour of three days. You come back, you have four days. 
because you were with still active with the birds, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. So sure. you would just help out when you could. And was this something that came from from Larry? Like, did he include you in his other? Because he brought in a bunch of people when he so he starts managing the birds, but he's also bringing in Graham. I don't know if it's if he's got the International Submarine Band. No, the submarine band was not a part of that. They were not just Graham. Just Graham and uh, the actor, and I can't remember his name right this second. Um, but he was a singer and a good friend of Graham's from New York. He had his own vision on what this was going to be. Yeah. And doing the movie, of course, I ended up getting involved in that. Talk about Easy Rider. Easy Rider, yes. Okay. They had done one movie already, which was called Hell's Angels on Wheels, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. And then the second movie of the of the deal was Easy Rider. And the birds were to do the music for Easy Rider. But they ended up bringing in Steppenwolf and some other people as well. We did some of the music and the others did the rest of the music. So Larry Spector kind of sounds to me like he's a very ambitious guy. He was a very ambitious guy. <laughs> he's got a lot going on. Very aggressive. He had a lot going on. Um, he seemed to know a lot of people in the movie industry. Whatever that means, I never met any of those people, but I was too busy. I mean, that's the way it was. And Crosby introduced us to him. And as soon as Crosby left the band, he left Spectre. He pulled his money out and he went away. So I didn't see David again at the office. And I was at the office as many times as I needed to be. I had an office, but I was never there, really. I would just go in and look at what I had to look at, paperwork and contracts. But I did my work with the agents and presented the contracts to Spectre first. Here's what we're going to do. These four gigs, they're going to make this kind of money, and it's going to cost us approximately this much to travel to these gigs. And then at first I let him call Roger and explain it to Roger, and that didn't last long. And then pretty soon he's going, yeah, well, why don't you call Roger? Okay, so I call Roger and I just tell him on the phone, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And he said, okay, that sounds good. And I would show up with the contracts the next day or a couple of days later that he had to sign. Uh, there's a musician's contract when you do gigs, right? You know that the agent gives you, and you had to get that signed. And Roger was the leader of the band, so Roger had to sign him. So I'd have to track him down, which was not easy sometimes. But I would track him down because he was writing with uh, with his pal from New York, Jock Levy, and they would go to Jock's hotel to get away from his house with the kid and be alone and write. And is this kind of what was going on after David left and after the Notorious Bird Brothers was, was finished? Well, yeah, it was going on. It was going on a little bit before David left, and then after David left, it was going on. And I was the one who was trying to get a band together, a four-piece band. And David left, and who's going to replace him? What body is going to stand on the stage? Well, Spectre had Graham Parsons who he suggested early on, but McGuinn wasn't fond of that idea okay. for, for whatever reason. His country sound, the way he looked, he had a twang in his voice, and there were other reasons, I'm sure, that Roger had, but he wasn't sold on Graham. Okay, so then Larry suggested, well, what about Gene, one of his other guys that's in his right. stable? Right, yeah, because he's, he's okay. also... He's a bird. He was a bird. Well, I hadn't really ever seen Gene perform before that. Okay, so they said, okay, we set up some rehearsals at some joint over on La Brea, and there comes Gene. And he's a little nervous coming in, okay? You have to expect that. He was the big bird, after all. Right, he, but he's been off now. He but he's been gone for, well, I don't know, a year, maybe maybe a year and a half. He hasn't performed with them. Now, I don't know if I've told you already, but the birds never rehearsed as the four of them. 
that I started working with. They rehearsed in the recording studio when they were playing the songs before they recorded them. That was it. So for them to do a rehearsal was big news for me. And I booked this room, which we'd never worked in before, and I got the equipment there and I set it up and... You know, Gene comes in and he's a little bit nervous and shy and how are you, man? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual stuff that guys do. And then Chris showed up and McGuinn showed up and Michael showed up and they were goofing around like like they do because they've known each other for years, these guys. So I'm the new guy. And they're talking, they're, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And Gene's got an acoustic guitar, so I have to get him a microphone because he doesn't have a plug-in on this guitar. He said, no, no, I don't need that. I'll, I have another guitar that I can plug in. He said, I'll bring that tomorrow. So they start working on some songs. Not old, but these are bird songs from the past. Are these Gene's older songs? Yes, yes. He was the lead singer and the main songwriter in the band. I didn't know that until much later. And so I'm listening to these songs, and this is the first time I've ever heard some of these songs. And he was a bit shaky with the songs. I attribute it to nerves, but it was shaky. It was He was like frightened or afraid of the songs or afraid to sing the song. And I had never seen that in a, in a, in a band situation ever with anyone. So not ever seeing a guy on stage who had been the star of the band, evidently. I had learned that much from fans and from other people, that he was the star. He came out there with a tambourine, usually, and an acoustic guitar over his shoulder, maybe, around his back, and he would take over and dance around the stage, and chicks loved him. So he was like the hype man for the he band. He was like the hype man for the band, yeah. And he's, he wasn't really that now. He just wasn't. He wasn't that out there guy that I was expecting. He was He was scared to be that again because it had been over a year since he was that. So this was no longer his birds. Right. It was McGuinn and Hillman's birds because they were the singers and they were the primary focus. So he really didn't see how he fit was pretty much most of it. And we'd take a break. And Gene would come over to me and go, Jimmy, so how was I? Like, dude, you were fine. Just relax. Relax. You're going to be just fine. You got this, Gene. You have a great voice. Your songs are awesome. I've never heard these songs before. You're going to be just fine. They sound great. I was uh, lying, of course, but... I don't think he. I don't think he realized that. And Hillman kind of looked at me over. And I saw it. Hillman out of the corner of my eye. And he kind of looked at me and went, "Oh, dude, why did you do that?" Well, I'm trying to give him some confidence. So I went and talked to Hillman away from everybody. So I need to get somebody's got to give him some confidence. You guys have to give him confidence. You have to tell him, "Oh man, that was great." Blah blah blah. Whatever you think he needs to hear, so that he can be who he used to be. Right. Yeah, because he's been gone for so long. Exactly. I don't know. I told Chris, I said, Chris, I never saw the birds as five. You're not a Motown band, so I never saw you before. <laughs> right. So I don't know what he was. I just know what he is now. And what he is now is a scared guy who's afraid to come out and do what he did before. That's what I see. He doesn't sing with positive energy. He doesn't, um, you know, I can hear it in his voice that he can sing and he can do it, but he's not doing it. So you guys who've been with him before, you need to pump him up somehow and get him to perform for you. And how did they respond to that? Well, McGuinn, of course, didn't want to hear it. 
he was just like, well, this, that's what this is for, is to see how he can do. And I said, yeah, but I get that. I understand. And, you know, and McGuinn was always looking down his nose at me anyway, because who are you to tell? It was kind of like he didn't say it, but he meant it. Who are you to tell us how to deal with this? Well, I'm the guy that stands off stage and watches your ugly asses. All right. I'm where the audience is. I hear the comments. Yeah. You don't hear the comments. I do. And I'm just telling you what I see. And I think that he's salvageable, but you have to pump him up. You guys need to tell him, Gene, that was great. Just that kind of stuff. Sure. Build him up. And they started a little bit. You know, McGuinn, McGuinn doesn't have a personality, all right? That's all I can say. He never did. <laughs> he never did. He doesn't have my personality for sure because he couldn't possibly do what I do. There's no way in hell he could do that. I can get the best out of any artist. And that's what Eddie Tickner told me when I worked with Gene uh, later. Well, that's right, because you, you end up working with Gene. Yeah, yeah. Eddie hired me to go in the studio with him because he was having trouble relating. He said, Cider, I don't know why, but somehow Gene listens to you. He doesn't listen to anybody else, but he listens to you. And and in this instance, did he listen to you and start he, getting his confidence up? He did listen to me, yes. But I w- felt it was important that the band that he had played with for years had reinforced that. That would have been even better. For me to do it, he knows I've never seen him perform before. So what right. do I know? But they know him, and they've known him for years. So tell him he did a great job. Who does that hurt? Even if he was shitty, tell him he did a great job. That's all. Hillman got it. He understood where I was coming from. And Michael got it. And, of course, Michael and, and Gene had two bar stools down at Troubadour that they sat on probably three, four times a week and got shit-faced drunk. Right. They were very close. Right? They were very close friends, yes. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the rehearsal, Gene left and McGuinn left, and Himmel was there. He said, so, Cider, what, what, what's the deal? What do you think? I said, well, he's not the dynamic force that I thought he was going to be after hearing all that I've heard about him. That's kind of lost in him now. So he needs to find that in himself, and you guys need to help. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is I don't think Gene Clark is going to get on that airplane the day after the first gig in Minneapolis. And Chris just looked at me and said, well, well, what do you mean? He's flying to Minneapolis with us. I said, no, he's not. But they didn't know. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, he's taking the train from Los Angeles to Minneapolis. Okay. <laughs> so, so before he even did this rehearsal, he's already agreed to some type of tour. Yeah. Well, it was a, I think it was four days. East Coast. One in Minneapolis and then the East Coast. I don't remember where. I think Fillmore East was the first show for two days. And, of course, Bill Graham calls me and says, who's playing? Who's going to be the fourth guy? And I said, Gene Clark. And he's like, oh, he's back? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. So what do you mean? I said, well, I don't know if he's going to fly to New York. I told him straight out. I don't know, Bill. I wish I could tell you yes. But if I tell you yes and he doesn't show up, then I'm the asshole. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, you're an asshole anyway. But I had a good relationship with Bill Graham. Even though Bill wasn't running East Coast, he was dealing with the contract issues and making sure that they had pictures that they could use for advertisement, put on a poster. Right. Which Fillmore is pretty exactly. well Exactly. Fillmore for. was famous for that. Yeah. And, you know, he hated it when he had the wrong picture. Absolutely hated it. Because now he's got a bunch of posters he can't really ever put into his Fillmore catalog collection. Yeah, although today a misprinted uh, poster would probably be worth more. Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly, of course. But that's today. Yeah. Back then, it was he wanted it to be correct. Sure. Anyway, and then Kip Cohen called me from New York, from the Fillmore East. Great guy. Kip Cohen was a classic guy to run that club. He was very personable. He was very friendly. He's like, okay, so he said, I just had to listen to 10 minutes of Graham screaming in my ear. So what's going on with the birds? I said, well, today <laughs> we rehearsed with Gene Clark as the fourth bird. He's like, oh, that's interesting. So am I going to get a picture with Gene Clark? I said, well, we don't have any pictures with him, but I'll see if we can get one and send it out to you. Did you guys do that? Did you set up a photo shoot? Well, no, sort of. <laughs> sort of. We took some Gene photos and the three birds. We replaced Crosby with Gene. <laughs> oh, no way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cut and paste. Oh, man. Okay. That, that poster's out there somewhere. Because this is, this is way before Photoshop. Yes, exactly. And so that poster's out there somewhere. Now, now I've stepped in it because I've told Kip, this is who's coming. And now I'm going, oh, shit, why did I do that? Because we had had a really good relationship until then. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and same with Bill Graham, okay? And he would he would chew me up and spit me out. Anyway, so the birds are coming, and they've replaced uh, David with, with Gene Clark. Okay, so they, they advertised that. I'm sure they put it in the, the Village Voice and, you know, the press in New York and whatever. And the gig is still maybe two weeks away. Well, this is an interesting caveat to that. Um, there was an amplifier company called Acoustic Amplifiers. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Uh-uh. They basically had a front that was, uh, they used a powder blue panel, two big, two 15-inch speakers, and then a powder blue horn on the top for the high frequencies. And it was like right out there. And I had turned this guy down from Acoustic because his office was over on um, Coenga, but over in the Valley side. I had turned him down a couple of times because he wanted, I'll give you guys amps, I'll blah, blah. I said, no, man, we're doing Fender. He, he wanted to sponsor you guys. Well, he wanted to get his solid state amplifiers out there on stage somewhere. Okay. And send someone around to get pictures of the birds using acoustic amps after years of using Fender amps with tubes. Right. Go figure. I don't even know how he found Roger, but Roger tells me at the, at the third rehearsal, oh, by the way, acoustic's going to be dropping by some amplifiers tomorrow, and we're going to take them with us on the tour. <laughs> so I'm like, out of nowhere, I'm going, really? Do they have cases? I mean, I'm just going right at them, okay? Do they have cases? Oh, I don't know. Well, I knew the guy's number, so I called him. I went out to the phone and called us. Do they have cases? They have road cases? Uh, no. They need to have road cases so they can't go with us. I was using every excuse I could. Not to bring these amps. Not to bring those amps, okay? Because first of all, they're big and heavy, and secondly, they're solid state, so they don't sound at all like a Fender amp. Right. So it's going to just totally change the show. Totally change the sound. Okay. And is this is this just just really quickly here? Is this one of those instances where Roger's curiosity about new gadgets got the best of him? Well, I don't know, but at the first rehearsal where they put him on stage, the two 15-inch speakers and a horn on this fucking thing that kind of looked like a, a an Ampeg bass rig, if you know what that looks like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Big, heavy shit, okay? It made his 12-string cut right through your body if you were standing in front of it, right? This is Roger McGuinn, who had a hearing problem from the day I met him because he's playing a 12-string guitar. It's all high-end, and he couldn't really hear the high-end stuff. And here we hear he has this amplifier now that has a fucking horn on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay? 
And that's what I had told the guy that owns the company before this. And he somehow found sussed out Roger and convinced him that he would give him all these amps and blah, 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 blah. I don't know what their deal was, but when we rehearsed, it was so maniacally bad at the rehearsal even at this little joint. I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? And Hillman looks at me and goes, what's the matter? I said, can you hear that shit? He's like, yeah, it sounds a lot different. I said, yes, it does. There's no ring. There's no ring that you get from a tube amplifier. You play the note and it dies. It doesn't ring. Right, okay. So it has no like resonance. It doesn't, yeah. In a tube amp, inside the tube, that tone sustains itself. There's a sustain to a, a tube amp that acoustic amp didn't have because it was solid state. You play the note, the note stops, you're done. Like with, and, and it made, you know, McGuinn and his 12-string, God bless him, okay, he relied on that tone to continue on while he played something else over it. That was part of his sound. Right. And that wasn't there in the acoustic amp. So he basically told me, he said, okay, look, we'll take these amps with us. And we'll have them on stage. They'll look like we're using them, but we may not use them. Great. I have to, I have to carry an extra 700 <laughs> pounds of shit just to, to pacify you not being able to tell the guy, I'm sorry, we don't want to use solid state amplifiers, really. I didn't say that to McGuinn, but that's what I should have said and said, and said I'm not taking them. So you did take them. I had to. Oh, wow. They, they showed up and they had cases. I couldn't get out of it. They had cases made. They weren't good cases, but they were cases. And they had a a smaller version that didn't have a horn that was for the bass. And it really sounded like dog shit. Sorry, acoustic amps. Your amps suck. Anyway, Roger sprung that out of me at rehearsal about the third day with Gene Clark struggling to become the Gene Clark of old and be able to go on stage and not embarrass himself and the band. Michael even came to me after the one of the rehearsals is just like so what do you think i said mike was he like this before when you guys you know when in the original band he's like no he was not I said what the fuck happened I, said, I don't know i don't know he said i went to, i went to i met him at the troubadour last night and all he talked about the whole time was to ask me how he was doing wow now so- He's just completely unsure of himself. Totally unsure of himself. And Michael said, it made me crazy. I had to leave and leave him there, okay? <laughs> just sitting there drunk on a bar stool because I couldn't deal with it anymore. He kept asking me over and over, well, how was it? Well, how was I on this? Well, how was I on that? And it's like, Hillman already knew my response. And then Spectre calls me the next day. So I hear uh, Gene's not very sure of himself. I said, Larry, you need to come to a rehearsal and hear it for yourself. He's a great guy. He writes great songs, and he has a great voice, but he's not all there yet. And I don't know when he will be all there or if he can be all there again. And the band doesn't seem to know, and I've asked them to help build up his confidence. He doesn't look like he's enjoying himself. He looks like a turd in a punch bowl, basically. (laughs) And he's not having fun, and he's not doing a good show. Hillman knows it, McGuinn must know it, and Michael knows it. They know him best. I don't. I only see what I see. And what I see is a guy who's not ready to go back on stage right now. So did you want more rehearsal? Well, we had, we had, another, we had another week set of rehearsals. But Gene had to leave three days early because he was taking a fucking train. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's wintertime, all right? And he's taking a train to Minneapolis. From L.A. From L.A. And it's a three-day trip. By train. 
Sure. You go to St. Louis, then you go to Chicago, then you go to Minneapolis. That's the deal. That's the route. It's a hellacious route. And I didn't realize it took that long on the train. Was he planning on doing the entire tour by train? He knew we couldn't do that. And he asked me that the first day when he told me he was going on the train. So he says, I can't do those rehearsals on this day, this day, and this day. And I just looked at him and said, why? He said, because I'm taking the train. Oh, I see. Okay. So then I break the news to Hillman and he's like, his mouth was open. He's like, what? He's taking the train? I said, yeah. I said, Chris, does that give you confidence that he's going to fly with us the next day? And Chris is like, uh, no, not really. So then he went over to talk to him and he promised him right there. I heard it. Yeah, I'll take, I'll fly. I will. I'll fly. Okay. And they believed that. I didn't believe it. Spectre came. The next day, he saw the rehearsal and took me outside, and he just shook his head and went, oh, my God. I said, yeah, tell me about it. This is what you're giving me to take out there to do a professional show. And he's a good guy. I love Gene. I think he's a great songwriter. And he he just kind of took a big sigh, and he said, geez, I didn't know this. I said, well, now you do. You saw for yourself. What do you think? He said, well, he didn't look very confident. I said, yes. And an audience is going to see that. I mean, they're not stupid. Right, okay? right, yeah. <laughs> they're going to look up there and go, wow, what the, fuck, what the fuck is he doing up there? Okay. And that's not good for him either because no, then he's going to feed off was, that energy. It was tearing him apart, really. It really was inside. That's why I was asking, how was I? How was that, Jimmy? Was, he, was I okay? Do you like that song? I said, I love the song, Gene. He's like, yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And I just, I'm not a psychiatrist psychologist i'm just me okay (laughs) and i say pretty much i say pretty much what i'm thinking and when you ask me i'm gonna tell you and anyway usher had booked a session for the guys in those days when gene wasn't going to be around because he was on the train so becker tells me he said listen can you come by the office and i'll take gene down to the train station i said sure and i met him at the office and we went upstairs we talked we talked to specter specter gave him some dough comes time to go to the train and he's in a hurry to get on the train. I want to get to the train. Okay, I said, okay, I got one thing I have to do. I'll be right down. So we're on the fourth floor in an older Beverly Hills building. The elevators are not that big. They're uh, maybe four feet by four feet. And uh, I'm in my office at the window open, and I hear Gene screaming, get me out of here. Ah, blah, blah. Like, oh, what the fuck? So I go out to the elevator. He's stuck between floors. And he has claustrophobia. Oh, man. Added to all the other shit in the world that he has, claustrophobia comes up. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So I hear him screaming and yelling, and I go in and get Spectre. He's like, what's, what's going on? I said, call somebody, get them here, get the fire department or whoever, get him out of that fucking elevator. And he's like, oh, God, he runs back inside. And Spectre was kind of a little short, plump guy, okay, and, and not very physical, right. if you will. He's very, uh, you know, he was very foppish. You know what a fop is? No. Uh, in England, fops were the little collars and, you know, they were always proper. And that, that was Spectre, okay? Anyway, he's got a, a sweater on over a white shirt and, and slacks. And, you know, so he's running back in to call. He's having somebody call, call the building, call the maintenance, call whoever. We need to get him out of that elevator. So then, meanwhile, I go over to the other one. I was like, Gene, this is Jimmy. Jimmy, get me out of here, blah, blah. I said, dude, I'm, we're working on it, okay? That's all I can say. So you have your guitar with you? He's like, yeah. I said, play me that new song you were working on the other day. That's all I could think of. And he, he says, really? Now? I said, yeah, play me that song. Take out your guitar and play me that song. I can hear you just fine. So he does. 
He's playing and he's singing. And Spectre comes over and goes, what the fuck? He said, what, what's that all about? I said, dude, I had, to, I had to calm him down, okay? He's out of his mind right now. Music calms him down, okay? So he's playing me his new song. And he sounds great in the elevator, the echo. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's come on. Acoustics, yeah. All right? He's in the elevator and it's coming up the shaft. He sounded awesome. So I think the elevator was stuck between the second floor and the third floor. Right. So that song's finished. I said, okay, play me something else. So he plays me something else from rehearsal. And... The, the guys show up, the fire department shows up, and the elevator company both show up. And they work on it, da, da, they take the electric, they finally get it to work, down to the bottom. I go downstairs, I go down the steps. You know, the elevator's here, and around the elevator are steps. So I go down the steps, and I'm at the ground. The door opens, and Gene is there with his guitar, and he's sweating like he's run a 100-yard dash 50 times on a hot day. Oh, man. Okay. He was just covered in sweat. Uh, medical guys came. You know, they, they helped me get him settled down. And then he's looking at his watch going, oh, we're going to miss the train. We're going to miss the train. I said, I'll get you to the fucking train. Don't worry. So we go into the parking garage, and that's when I see the Ferraris parked that way. I'm like, oh, my God, dude. Really? And so are, what, are they, just, just, for, just for a point here, are these the same cars that earlier the, the band was really upset about? That, yes. They and are. why they started doing all their own songs? Yes, exactly. Okay. And they this these are the two cars that he bought for his ego, if you will, to satisfy him that he was better than they were. That's in his mind, I think. I don't know what the deal was. But he didn't have a place to park them where he lived that he felt safe. So he somehow brought them both to the office <laughs> and parked in the... The office had straight-in parking spaces. He parked on a diagonal, 45-degree diagonal, in four spaces. And he paid for four spaces for those cars. And anyway, I, he gets in my station wagon. We jam out of Beverly Hills. Now, we're at Burton Way and somewhere. I don't know where. And we have to go to Union Station downtown. Not a pretty drive. I'm cranking as fast as I can go without getting busted. And I'm just trying to end it. And he's sweating. And he's going, he's talking a mile a minute. And I said, dude, relax. Just take it easy. You're going to fucking have a stroke. He said, no, I, I don't want to miss this train because there's not another train for until tomorrow. And I go, I see, I get it. Okay. Yeah, trains aren't like planes. And <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking that. I'm not saying that, okay. There's no way I'm going to talk about a plane with him. You know, and then later, as he started to calm down, because he's just been through it. I mean, getting stuck in an elevator is not fun. No, no. And for him, it really wasn't fun. It was major. So we get to the train station. We run inside. He's got the ticket already. Spectre had somebody pick the ticket up days before. So we run down to the platform. I get him into his car. I give the porter that's handling his car a hundred bucks. I said, please take care of him. He's a little bit freaked out. So Gene had his own room. Like a sleeper car, right? On the train, okay. Yeah. Um, So... The guy's like, yeah, the black hat was like, yeah, sure, I'll take care of him. I said, please. He's a very special guy. He's very freaked out right now because he got stuck in an elevator on the way here. He's like, oh, my God, that will freak you out. I said, yeah, so just be kind with him. See that he has everything he wants. And like, dude, we'll see you in Minneapolis, okay? You dress warm enough. And he had a heavy jacket with him. Said, yeah, you're good. It's cold there. Wintertime, man. Come on. Minneapolis? Really? Cold. Oh, yeah. So I go back to the office. And Inspector's pacing in the office. He's like, how was he? I said, oh, man, really? He's a maniac. 
Larry. He's a maniac. I mean, he got stuck in an elevator for 25 minutes, and then I drove him like a man. I drove him like I was a maniac to the fucking train station. Okay, he got on his train. He made the train, but you know, he was not in good shape. He was sweating like a fucking pig. So Larry's like, "Oh damn!" I said, "You need to get him some help." So we go ahead with our two days. We didn't need any more rehearsals. They were in the recording studio finishing up some stuff, listening to uh, mixes and all that stuff. For the Notorious Bird Notorious Brothers, Bird Brothers yes. Okay. Now, the one thing that y'all out there in podcast land need to remember is what the state of the art was in the recording studio in those days. Many of the record plants and... Uh, Wally Hyder Recording and all those independent studios in Hollywood, they were already using 16 tracks and had their consoles all retrofit for 16-track recording. However, CBS is an old-school, union-run piece of crap at that time. And they didn't do that. They had 8-tracks. The consoles were wired for 8-tracks. And to rewire a console in that era was would take weeks and they were fully booked so they didn't have time to fix it and they didn't really want to fix it because they had all these eight tracks well that makes it more difficult to mix that makes it more difficult to do whatever because you have to combine things so you end up with an empty track right so it fits on that huh just to fit everything into yeah, eight tracks. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like today where you have infinitesimal tracks. You can you can fart on one track, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and you, you still have twenty. You still have thirty-eight more tracks or whatever. Yeah. Well, the only one who got around all that was Gary Usher, and he used to use double eight tracks with a sync track. You take a sync generator and you put it on track eight over here and track eight over here now they're synced together so now you have two seven tracks working in unison which is 14 tracks gotcha it's not 16 but it's 14 and that's better than eight okay right right okay so there was ways around it there were ways around it but most engineers wouldn't want to do that especially the union guys because they were looking at it like it was some kind of cosmic science that hadn't been tested (laughs) <laughs> All right. it's like, guys, it's it's two it's, eight tracks linked together. Because <laughs> when yeah, when we did Sweetheart, we had to get the the sync generator flown to Nashville from Hollywood, so we could do the same thing in in Nashville. Because in Nashville, you you were also at a CBS yeah studio, course. so it was the same eight tracks. That's all they had. Oh, okay, gotcha. Corporately, they hadn't decided at CBS to go to sixteen tracks yet. Gotcha. Yet every studio in Hollywood had them, except them and uh, RCA, which was also a union shop, and Capital, which was a union shop. So the boys went in and had to deal with some shit like that because they were moving tracks around and you know editing and and putting this here and putting. Sometimes a track would have eight bars of this on it, and then it would have uh, a couple of spaces, and then eight bars of something else on the same track. And you had to you had to be very clever to mix that because one time it's a voice the next time it's a guitar right 
And you go, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, it's on that same track. That's the way you had to do the tracks. That sounds like a pain in the ass. It was a total pain in the ass, but that's what they had to do. So this is what the band was doing on those days. This is what the band was doing when Gene, Gene was gone. While Gene is riding exactly. a train. <laughs> Gene's on a train and they're going, I wonder where he is. I wonder if he got to Chicago yet. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. I don't know. And it was winter. So, you know, snow, storms, whatever. You don't know if you're going to get there. Anyway, the day comes, we fly to Minneapolis. And my first assignment was to get my ass to the train station to pick up Gene at whatever time he was coming in. And I called, and the, he, the train was on time. So I jam over there, and I get to the, I get to the train station, and I go out on the platform, and, and there's Gino with his jacket on now, carrying his guitar case, and he's perspiring again. It's cold as fuck in Minneapolis. So he's perspiring like he's been in a sauna. <laughs> okay. okay it's just running down his face so he isn't like traveling at all well he was overthinking what he was going to do when he had to fly okay so he was all that's all he was worried about that's all he was worried about okay so he gets in the car he's going how's everybody i said they're fine thank you everyone's good they're all just waiting for you to get to the hotel so they can see how you are he's like i'm good i'm good i'm good he was talking real fast and animated and, and we get to the hotel and he get i get him his room and he's goes up to his room and i call hillman i said okay he's in room whatever 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 and hillman calls mcguinn and they go together down to see gino and when he opens the door he's still perspiring like crazy and i'd already told Hillman. i said dude he looked like he just came out of a sauna <laughs> on the platform so he's He's sweating profusely. Okay, well, we'll go, we'll go see what we can do. And eh, he, Michael goes to see him, and they go down and have some drinks. And, you know, Gino's calming down now, and he's okay. And, okay, I said, okay, tomorrow the schedule is the band leaves the hotel at 3 o'clock for a sound check. Okay, are you going to be ready? Oh, yeah, 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 I'll be ready. Okay. So I may not be here, so you have to be ready because I'll be at the gig getting ready. You know, I'm having to set up acoustic amps oh yeah <laughs> so they look like they're being used oh, how was that at the airport just shitty oh it was horrible it was horrible it barely fit in the fucking van i had rented it was terrible and they're heavy as fuck so i get them all in there i get to the gig i unload them and the the guy that's running the the gig he's like so which amps are you going to use I said, I have to have both of them out there because acoustic is sending a photographer to take pictures but they're going to be up there with your other amps, which are Fender. Yeah. So, so how can they even use those photos? Or did you set them up separately? I set them up so they looked like they were being used. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I turned the lights on. I put the cords out. I did all that shit. Uh, but they weren't being used at all. I mean, McGuinn started to use one, and it sounded like dog shit. So he stopped. Do, do these photos exist anywhere? No idea. Acoustic amplification? Maybe. What do they look like? They yeah. show a picture of them? They have that blue. Powder blue? Yeah. That might be him. Here. I'll just flip my screen. They're using Yeah. It. That's those ugly pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, so that's them, huh? Well, but that's they, them. they used to have a, a, a Well, the, yeah, they, have a horn, they had a horn on top. Okay. A but, powder blue plastic but it, but horn. But it was this company, Acoustic? Looks like it. Okay. Wait, you know what? It's funny. They have a history here. I'm going to just see real quick. This is, oh yes, they have, um, oh God, they have some door shots on here, some Sly and the Family Stone. 
Yeah, they were giving their shit away. To oh, I was just hoping, it. I was really hoping they would have a bird's picture up on here. But you could tell they did this. They went out and... Uh, they went out and took pictures. Yes, they did. I'm going to link this on the website so you can go check these out. So you know what he's talking about here. But did it look anything like that? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, that's them. With the horn With on the top. With the horn on the top. With the horn yes. on the top. And the amplifier set up on top of them. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The head. Yep. And those are the speaker cabinets. Well, I had them set up the way they were supposed to be set up. And, you know, one of the guys there that was there from the other band, he tested them for me. And they worked fine. He's like, oh, these are groovy. And I said, yeah, but they're fucking solid state. He said, oh, that's not bad. I said, well, it is if you're used to using tubes. Tubes have like a mellow sound to them. All right. A solid state amplifier has a really sharp cutting sound to it. And it, there's no way to smooth that out. They try, but you can't. It's just not possible. Or it wasn't, let me put it this way. It wasn't possible back then. Yeah. It might be possible now. I, I, I don't think they'll be advertising on our show, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? The guy was nice. The, the guy that ran the company was a nice guy. But I just said, I just looked at him and said, man, we prefer tubes. Your amps are solid state. Which part of that don't you understand? That's what I said to him. But McGuinn bought into it and was going to get all this free equipment that he thought was going to be great for us. No, it wasn't at all. It was a pain in my ass. Anyway. Anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there. Yeah, so you no, got that, this thing set up. No, that's, that's so, you know, in the, in, the, in the age of the internet, you can actually look and see it. That's what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with them was, at this particular venue, the amplifiers were sitting up on a foot and a half high step that was at the back of the stage. So that fucking horn was right in your ear. And if McGuinn had played it, he would have deafened himself immediately. Mm, okay. Because that would have been right in his ear. And with all the high notes that a 12-string plays awful really awful and the bass amp sounded like dog shit really it was terrible oh, god and of course gene she said do i get one of those i said you want one of those he's like oh i'll try it and plugged him into that and he's he really sounded awful but then he sounded awful anyway he wasn't back yet so i'm assuming this wasn't a good show it was hard for me to sit there with the mixer and listen it was so bad you know i'm really bad and they came off, I think there was a 30-minute break, and they were changing, I don't, I'm not sure how they did it, but they were changing half the audience. Some people bought tickets for both shows, some people didn't. And that became a clusterfuck because they had to get the people out of there that only bought one show tickets. Oh, yeah. that's. Can you imagine? What the hell? And it was, it was full. This joint was full. So anyway, second show, I mean, Gene's in the dressing room sweating like, fuck uh, and i go in there and finally and i was like i look at him and i said so what's going on he's like well we're trying to beef him up like you said i said well yeah and does it work he said well not so much not not yet I said okay well tomorrow's going to be the big deal whether he gets on an airplane with us and flies to new york so we can do this all over again and and, I, and i'm assuming like the new york the fillmore show is more important than this Minneapolis oh absolutely show. Yeah, yeah so it's almost like a warm-up yeah, this was like, well, this was just a gig that was on the way to New York. Okay. Phil date. Okay. They paid money. Yeah. They paid money, but it was really a terrible show. By my standards, it was an awful show. Okay. I just didn't dig it at all. And it was obvious that he was nervous and he was shy and he was unsure of himself. And um, he kept looking around, looking for McGuinn to say, good job, Gene. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, no. Anyway, so the next, we go back to the hotel and Gene's constantly on me. How was I tonight? How was I? Was I good? I said, yes, Gene, you were great. What could I say? You sounded like shit. No, you sounded like shit. I mean, Gene was a great big guy. He knocked the shit out of me. <laughs> you were afraid of Gene Clark. Uh, physically, yeah. He could. He was a tough boy from the Ozarks in okay. Missouri. Okay. Right. He grew up in the Ozarks where they, they fight for anything. All right. So I said, it was fine. You just need to relax on stage. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. I said, okay. Now you need to go to your room. You need to go to sleep. And when I come to get you in the morning, you get up, you're all dressed, you eat breakfast, and we go to the airport and you fly. It's like, okay, 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 I will, I will, I promise. Well, I will, I will, I promise. He leaves, 20 minutes later, my phone rings. It's Spectre. He's going, what's going on? Gino called me and wanted me to book him a train ticket back to LA. Like, what? <laughs> 20 minutes after talking 20 to minutes after talking to me oh and assuring God. me he was going to fly. He had called Larry and told him to book him a ticket from Minneapolis back to Los Angeles. Oh. Then the, the next day, which is when we were flying to New York. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I just finished booking it. So he's not going to go to New York. No, he's not. He, he just, he can't fly. He said, I cannot fly. And I just took a deep breath and said, so we're going to New York as a trio to the biggest hotspot on the East Coast, the F Fillmore East. And we've lied to them and told them there was a band of four. And the fourth was Gene Clark. And they've been pumping that all week. He's like, yeah, I guess so. I said, Jesus Christ. Larry, this is a fucking nightmare, okay? Really, really, this is a nightmare. So I gave him, you know, I, I said, I'll get him to the train station. What time does this train leave? He gave me the information. I said, okay, I'll get him there. But I'm not telling the guys until it happens. I won't, I won't I'm not going to do that. That's not my deal. Because then they'll go plead with him and it won't happen. He won't change it because I already had his ticket booked. Back to New York. So, okay, fine. Blah, blah. And I, I hang up the phone. I'm thinking, what should I do? Fuck. I said, fuck it. I'm not doing anything. I'll wait and see what happens in the morning. Knock, knock, knock. The door opens like King Kong was behind it. Okay. Wow. <laughs> really fast. Okay. And he's sweating profusely. And he said, Jimmy, I can't go to the airport. I'm not going to New York. And he closed the door. That was it? Well, that's all he said to me at that moment. So I, I just kind of went, okay. So I went over to Hillman's room and I knocked. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Guess what? He said, oh, I bet I know. Because he had already talked to Spectre. He said, so he's not going, right? I said, nope, he's not. And he was like, that fucker. He pissed. You know, he was really pissed. So he went over to his room and confronted him about it. And, and Gene was just beside himself. He couldn't. He couldn't hold a real conversation even. He couldn't talk to me either. And I just told Chris, I said, let, just let Roger know. We're going to New York. You guys are a trio. I said, <laughs> I told Chris, I said, I probably wouldn't tell Michael that. He'll realize it as soon as he, as soon as he gets in the car and Gino's not there. He'll know. <laughs> and you guys can jaw about it all the way to the airport. And I'll see you there. I have to pack all the acoustic equipment into the van. <laughs> and he laughed he just went oh yeah he said that was a fuck up i said yeah thank you so anyway i have to take gino to the train i took him to the train station and dropped him off made sure he got into the right car and gave the guy some money to take care of him keep an eye on him and i waved goodbye and said see ya i have to get to the airport and i went to the airport and 
you know, got the equipment on the plane and went up to the gate. The guys were sitting over there and Michael was just fucking pissed off. He was really pissed off. He said, how's Gino doing? I said, dude, he's a fucking nightmare. Okay. He couldn't even really talk to me. And, you know, he's going back to LA. He's doing a three day trip back to Los Angeles. He's not ready for this yet. He needs to go through some serious psychological help. And, and did he later on? I don't know if he did or not. Well, but I mean, you worked with him later, so yeah. You... Well, he his next action was to Dillard and Clark, the Dillard and Clark expedition, which was he and Doug Dillard, right, going around the country, and Dillard had a good effect on him, so he kind of got out of it there, and then he he teamed up with Carla Olson. I think her name is. And he did kind of an Emmy Lou Graham kind of thing with her. And that helped him get back his confidence. And when I worked with him, it was very strange. The album was great. I thought it was great. Um, his solo record, right? His solo record, yeah. Later on. Gene Clark, I think it was called No Other. But when I saw the cover, I couldn't believe it. He was dressed in a floppy sleeved pirate kind of shirt, white. <laughs> All right. On the album cover, he's standing wearing a blouse on top of a some type of classic car. Is it floppy sleeves? Yeah, and he he's, he's it's a blouse, and it's got like it's tied in the front. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. When I saw it, and, and he's got these very they're like parachute pants. Yeah, they're, parachute pants exactly. <laughs> and I could I mean that is so much not like Gene. You have no idea, okay? He's a kid from the Ozarks who grew up fighting his way through school and everywhere. He's a tough fucking guy, okay? Really tough. What you can't see in that photo, he has heavy eye makeup on. No, I can see it. Yeah? I can see it. Purple eyeshadow and eyelashes. I mean, he's all dolled up, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, that is so not Gene. I couldn't believe it when I saw that cover. I really couldn't because the music on that album was great, I thought. Yeah. But what that cover sucked. Is that for A&M? Does, uh, does that, it say? I don't know. I don't know if that was A&M. Or it, ABC. He, gotta love the internet. Uh, that was on Asylum. Asylum. Okay. I knew it was one of the A's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got the A right. Anyway, that was Gino's trip to uh, nowhere. So he was out of the band. And I called Spectre before I went to the... Tr- after actually when i came back from the train station i called him from the airport i said okay larry all the equipment's on the plane we're going to new york gene is on a train he's coming back to los angeles you know when he's coming you know the train and he was just he didn't know what to say he's like man i'm so sorry they said yeah i told you and you all think you you know you thought you knew better but he wasn't ever gonna fly we're back in New York. Michael's hating it big time because he's he feels so exposed as a trio. Uh, I put him kind of on a weird angle instead of straightforward just to try to... On stage. On stage, right. Hillman, <laughs> Hillman got to play all the bass runs he could play because there was no... <laughs> McGuit played his 12-string and Hillman was just all over the place and Michael was just going crazy. Was he just miserable? He hated it. Totally hated it. And we did, we had to do, I think, two days at the Fillmore and then one other gig, and I don't remember where that was. I think maybe Philadelphia. 
And then we flew home and Michael was bitching the whole way on the way home. And do you think that this, did this lead up to Michael leaving the band, this tour and, and Gene not being able to cut it? Do you think this did? I mean, we're going to, we're going to kind of split this into two episodes, this transitional time, because there's so much to cover here. But in your opinion, do you think that this led to Michael leaving the band? Yes, it had a lot to do with it because he felt, he basically told me, he said, I feel, I feel exposed without that fourth guy up there singing. Um, he said, I mean, it's, it's still the same instruments, really, uh, without a guitar, without an extra guitar. He said, but I just feel exposed, and I'm not the kind of drummer that can be exposed because I just play basic stuff. I'm a feel drummer, and that's what Michael was. Michael had a great feel for the music, but he wasn't Ginger Baker, and he wasn't... Uh, yeah, he wasn't one of those flash drummers. He wasn't Ainsley Dunbar. You know, he was Michael. And he he just felt weird about it. And he felt weird that Gene was the one who came and left. That didn't that didn't set well with him either. Because they were drinking buddies. Sure, sure. And you know, on that subject of, of like the fallout from this too, um, what did Spectre say? I mean, this was his guy. What did Spectre say? Like, how, yeah, how did he... He just apologized over and over and over. <laughs> for wasting their time. Because this for, is... For, yeah, for, for wasting their time and for coming to see the rehearsal and not realizing that it was not going to work. And why do it if it's not going to work? But Fillmore East, you can't cancel those gigs. You just can't. If you cancel the gig, you're probably never going to work there again. And it's the big deal in New York City at the time. So... That's, you know, that was the, that was the real reason behind our side. And they ended up as a trio and they did, according to uh, Kip, they did quite well as a trio. The, the audience was happy. They played well. The shows were good. Um, and they did, uh, I guess they would have played, they played four, two, four. Yeah, he made money. He made a lot of money on the show. But Michael wasn't happy as Michael a trio. was very unhappy. So that's, I mean, right there, you have the setup for... Yeah, for him now departing the birds, and then another lineup switch. You know, bringing in some new people, which we're going to talk about. Kind of going back a little bit here because Michael was already on the outs before some of these events took place. But we're going to go back and and then work our way forward to Michael leaving the band and the introduction of some new members. So be sure to tune in next week for all of that goodness. And a little reminder here about the website that we have up. I don't know if any of you have seen it yet but we do have an episodes page on the website where we will be sharing some information that you hear on the show some photos and things of that nature so be sure to check that out that's echoesfromthecanyons.com and don't forget to subscribe wherever it is you choose to listen to the show we'll see you next week Music for the show has been provided by the very talented Patrick Lines and Clayton Lithicum, and our editor is Yikang Yang. 